Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast about Scottish history. I'm Jenny, a below-average witch. And I'm Annie, an above-average cat. A wee while ago, one of our wonderful patrons suggested Slane's Castle as an episode topic, and we thought this was a great idea, and so we got to researching it. If you've listened to our previous two episodes, you'll know that there are in fact two Slane's castles. Old Slane's, which was destroyed in the orders of King James VI in the 16th century, and then its replacement, New Slane's Castle, the inspiration for Dracula's imposing Transylvanian clifftop castle. And although New Slane's has now fallen into ruins over the last century, even in its hollowed-out state, this castle is impressive. But even after two episodes, we still aren't quite done with Slane's castles. Because for centuries, Slane's was truly a hub of power and activity in Aberdeenshire. The family who owned it, the Hayes, whose head was the Earl or Countess of Errol, were embroiled in many a plot, scandal and power struggle. And in this episode, we're examining one of these in greater detail. And this is how New Slane's castle became embroiled in the Great Scottish Witch Hunt of 1597. However, before we get started, I've got a little content warning that this episode will contain some discussion of sensitive topics, including torture, execution, and also we have a chat about a strange sexual-based curse. So we ask that you listen with care and maybe don't let any young ones listen in until you have so you can decide for yourself if it's suitable. We've included some details of a very unusual trial and though we try to use cautious language around it, I want to save you an awkward conversation with anyone who may overhear this particular blather. If you're new to the podcast, maybe listen to a different episode first. Or you can just dive right in the deep end with us. (laughs) I'd just be disappointed with every episode you listen to after this. (laughs) (laughs) 
there's nothing less great than the Great Scottish Witch Hunt. They should really just call it the Dreadful Scottish Witch Hunt. Over the course of Stories of Scotland, we've done a few episodes on witch trials, but a few things have changed since we first started. In March 2022, Scotland's current, though sadly soon-to-be former, First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, offered a formal apology to people accused of witchcraft between the 16th and 18th centuries. The apology acknowledged the historical injustices of the witch trials and their gendered nature, because we know that over 80% of the people accused of witchcraft were women. This historic moment was thanks to the Witches of Scotland campaigners who are still pushing for a full pardon for these folk. We know that none of the people accused of witchcraft were actually witches. Instead, the witch trials tell us more about the fears and prejudices of communities rather than supernatural powers granted by the devil. The witch trials show how a flawed legal system can persecute some groups of people unfairly. They also give us fascinating insight into superstitions of the time. The early modern period has five great Scottish witch hunts. These are periods where we see significantly heightened witchcraft accusations, trials and executions. We see a snowball effect with witch trials. Often the accused person will be tortured and a confession extracted. In most of these confessions, the accused will name many others who allegedly practice witchcraft with them. These folk are then arrested and tortured in turn, implicating yet more people in a web of witchcraft, and so on and so forth. Because of the nature of these enchanted snowballs, we commonly see clusters of localised accusations. Today we're looking at one of these snowballs. It is the second Great Scottish Witch Hunt that occurred in 1597. 1597 is a special vintage for witch hunts. Scotland is facing many societal pressures at this time. The Reformation has left the country in a state of religious and political upheaval. As well as this, the crops have failed for the previous two years and things are looking bleak for the season ahead, resulting in parts of society facing famine. In the summer, there is also an outbreak of the plague, and to top it all off, King James VI of Scotland publishes his book, Demonology, which is an anti-demon endorsement of witch hunting. Mixing all of this together creates a soup of tension, suspicion and fear. That is not a tasty soup, Jenny. It is not. And there are witch hunts throughout Europe at this time. But it doesn't mean that everyone in Europe believes in witches. In fact, there's a lot of scepticism about witchcraft and the witch trials. But in Scotland, the king himself believes witches are a genuine threat to society. And this paranoia triggers a frenzy of witch hunts. One area that was struck particularly hard by this paranoia was Aberdeenshire. And some fascinating research has been undertaken on the nature of the Aberdeenshire witch hunts of 1597. There's a few notable instances in Aberdeen's city centre. One of these is a large group of folk accused of witchcraft with one of the allegations against them being that they were all dancing near the toll booth on Halloween. 
Is the toll booth not just ye olde police station? Yes, it's close to that. There would be trusted enforcers of the law there, but they're not really the equivalent of a modern police officer. However, after this accusation, none of the people inside the toll booth came forward as witnesses. So ultimately, no arrests were made for this so-called devil dance. What was so witchy about their dance? What made it something devilish rather than something fun? Well, allegedly, it took place in the dead of night, so they were waking people up and disturbing the peace. But they weren't just being drunken revelers, because they were under the conduct and guidance of the devil. Ah, okay. Well, the devil does like disturbing the peace, that's very on brand for him, so I guess I could see this happening. And, on this very same cursed Halloween of 1597, yet another group of folk near Bankery in rural Aberdeenshire are also allegedly caught in a dance with the devil. But this time, the devil is actually present, leading them all by playing his musical instruments. But although he is present, he is invisible. This is why I always fall for musicians, because there's an invisible devil nearby. Oh, okay, so not because they can enchant large groups of Aberdonians. I mean, that does it as well. Okay, well, each to their own. (laughs) But if we are to believe these accounts, devilish dances are happening all around Aberdeen on the Halloween of 1597. Apparently so. However, unfortunately, there was no devilish can-can and no devilish macarena. These instances are being collected via confessions, and that's why we didn't have arrests on this Halloween when they were allegedly happening. So these kinds of details point to answers being coerced out of people. Yeah, I guess if if none of the law enforcers in the toll booth actually saw this devilish dance that loudly took place right outside the toll booth, did it even happen? Or were these alleged dancers simply caught up in an out-of-control snowball of accusations? Great question. And to understand it, we have to roll our snowball back up the hill and find its source. This takes us back to the January of 1597. At around the same time, three women in two separate areas of Aberdeenshire are accused and imprisoned for witchcraft. The first two are Isabel Strachan and her daughter Elspeth Murray. They live in Dice and Isabel had a reputation within the community for having supernatural powers. It was believed that she specialised in protective charms and love magic, but also had a darker side to her powers. Amongst the many accusations levied against her, she is said to have cast harm onto those who had wronged her and their livestock as well. She had apparently caused a man to marry a woman who was inappropriate for him, and later that man and his wife lost everything and they became beggars. The man blamed Isabel for his misfortune, that Isabel must have cursed him to poverty. Isabel is also alleged to have undertaken some pretty strange spells. One of them involves taking the bones of a dead person, rinsing them in water, and then giving this bone broth to a sick person to drink in order to cure them. 
To end the spell, the cleaned bones must then be thrown into the River Dawn. It's a pretty strange one, but it reminds me a lot of wellness influences and bone broth nowadays. I see a lot of that. <laughs> but for all the negative accusations, it certainly seems like Isabel was a woman who people went to when they needed help. They sought out her powers, be it in love, health or advice. I don't necessarily agree with that because it implies that Isabel was indeed casting these spells, whether for good or for evil, and we just don't know that she was because there's no fairness within this trial. Now, the law isn't saying that there's good and bad magic, just that all witchcraft is granted from the power of the devil. And so all these accusations are only going to cause harm to Isabel. And for some unknown reason, the tides of reason turned against Isabel and her daughter, and they were accused of witchcraft. While her daughter was acquitted, Isabel was not. By the time she was executed in mid-March, the Aberdeenshire witch panic was in full swing. In these few short months, we see a sudden surge of witch accusations, trials and executions all across Aberdeenshire. The pattern of accusation, arrest, torture and confession led to more and more people being accused at an alarming pace. So much so that by the beginning of March, the local magistrates were in panic mode. They believed they were uncovering a huge devil-driven conspiracy in the area and they were unable to cope with the growing numbers of accused. In order to deal with their panic, they requested a general commission from the king, and they were granted a five-year commission. In non-16th century legal terms, this means that the king had temporarily granted the Aberdeenshire law enforcers extensive powers to set up local courts and tackle the sudden apparent witch problem in the area. This makes it much easier for them to start trials of any accused witch. Just five days after the commission was granted, the justiciary tried and executed Bessie Thorns, Christian Mitchell and Isabel Barron. These women were named in a confession extracted from Thomas Lay's who himself had been accused of leading a witch's meeting. He too was executed. A fourth woman he named, Isabel Mentith, hung herself in prison. And a fifth, Helen Mackey, had died in prison while awaiting trial. This is, it's a lot of death. And I just find it so shocking how quickly people go from being accused to being killed. It's like there's no time for them to even wrap their heads around what they're accused of, let alone mount a defence. Indeed, the court of justiciary is not something that you would want to get caught up in. Those in charge of the court were so swept up in the wave of panic and their legal practice is just fundamentally flawed. There was no appeal process if you were found guilty And often this meant that you could be found guilty and executed on the same day. The reason why we have so much information about the Aberdeenshire witch panic is that the Court of Justiciary compiled detailed ditties of the trial. 
Aditi is a record of the charges against someone accused in a criminal case. Despite the courts being temporary and therefore not having a formal system to preserve these records, they survived nevertheless, which is remarkable that we still have this documentation that we can read. They give us a window into the witch panic and show us the patterns of the cases in Aberdeenshire at this time, which is absolutely fascinating. So we've got a spate of witch accusations and trials all across Aberdeenshire at this time. And we find ourselves once more at Slane's. We mentioned previously that in January 1597, three women are accused of witchcraft. We've already covered two of these women who were from Dice, but the third was from Slane's. And who is in charge of Slane's at the time? Why, it's none other than the notorious Francis Hay, the ninth Earl of Errol, the very same Earl of Errol from the Spanish Blanks plot we covered in the first Slane's episode. There's a curious dynamic of power going on here, as Francis Hay plays his own political and religious control games throughout the 1590s. But if you recall, he has a massive personal transformation in 1597, when he returns from exile and renounces his Catholic faith in favour of Protestantism. So why does the mighty Earl of Errol suddenly get so involved with the witch hunt right around this time? The Earl of Errol is seeking favour with King James VI, and this is clearly why he's renounced his Catholic faith. And what better way to prove loyalty to the witch-obsessed king than to validate his paranoia and hunt and kill the alleged witches of his kingdom, thus protecting the realm from the devilishly sneaky devil. I, I don't know, like a fruit basket would have, would have been better? Instead of a witch hunt, Errol could have just sent the king a very fancy fruit basket, like maybe get a pineapple in there. People used to go crazy for pineapples back in the day. He would have loved it. If someone had whipped out a pineapple at this point in Northern Scotland, they'd 100% be accused of being a witch. <laughs> Plus, who needs a fruit basket when Errol can prove that he is united with the king against a bunch of powerless peasants who pose zero threat? He could have just listened to the king's paranoia about sorcery and perhaps suggested some therapy. But instead... <laughs> Errol decides to get into the weeds of witchcraft. A mango would have done the job. A mango and some therapy and he'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Now, one of the more famous trials of the 1597 witch hunt takes place at Errol's home, New Slane's Castle. It's the trial you've just mentioned of Ellen Gray. Ellen is sometimes also named Helen, but we see Ellen more consistently, so we'll stick with that. I'm going to get a few extracts directly from the witch trial of Ellen Gray because it is baffling. Her first trial was held in the stables of Slains in January 1597. And then there was a second trial in Aberdeen in April. And none other than Lord Francis Hay, 9th Earl of Errol, is named as the noble and potent Great Constable of Scotland and a justice holder. I would kind of like to be known as noble and potent. 
That just makes you sound like a gas on the periodic table. I don't mind being gassy. (laughs) The Great Constable of Scotland is a hereditary title. In this context, it's just highlighting that he's got the right to oversee legal trials. The top item on their size, the first accusation, is one that has caused a lot of speculation. Because people tend to assume that it's all about a bewitched penis. Now, I've modernised the language a tad, but here's the transcript. Uh, I think you mean that you've modernised it uh, tadger. Just read the transcript, Jenny. (laughs) Ellen Gray, thou art indicted as a common witch of sorcery, charms and witchcraft, which thou cannot deny, and by thereof, by the sorcery and devilry, thou bewitch Thomas Riddell, overseer of slains, so that his wand never lay down until he died, which thou cannot deny. So they're not giving her the slightest chance to deny that she bewitched Lord Voldemort's uh, uh, Thomas Riddell's wand to never lie down until... He literally died. Does does that mean what I think it means? I've been rolling this over in my mind. I bet you have. And I think we have two potential interpretations of this accusation. The first interpretation is that Thomas's wand is an actual magic wand. You know, which I, I don't think is that unlikely in the case of witch trials. And then Ellen is accused of putting him under a spell, which made him undertake sorcery and magic with this wand. Thus, he could not lie down his wand until he'd finished his enchantments, casting spells right up until the day he died. Right, 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 right. And what's the second one? Because that's not what I got from it at all. Well, the most common and accepted reading of this is that Thomas's wand is his penis and Ellen had cursed him causing his penis to stand up until he died. Gosh, that sounds like a hard time. So he either died of being a wand-waving wizard, or the much more likely scenario, he died of a constant erection. So instead of ding-dong, the witch is dead, we've got dong-dong, the wizard's dong. Indeed. Now, I've investigated this. I bet you have. And I've found that there's actually a medical condition called a priapism. Okay, and what is priapism? According to the NHS website, it's a long-lasting and painful erection. Ooh. It's associated as a potential symptom of underlying conditions of the blood. Though it can cause damage to the penis itself if left untreated, it doesn't seem to be a cause of death. So if you're listening to this episode and you suspect that your wand may be bewitched, then please seek professional medical help. Yeah, please don't get your medical advice from a podcast about witchcraft in the 1500s. (laughs) But can I ask, is there like a guilty Viagra that Thomas Riddle may have been drugged with? Is there something that was well known at the time to cause this sort of ailment which leads to death? Not that I can find, definitely not in this part of Scotland. I've looked into it and sildenafil, which is the drug inside of Viagra, is a lab synthesised drug 
and all of the main treatments for erectile dysfunction in early modern Scotland seem more likely to do harm than good. Okay, all right. Well, I guess that the other possible scenario is that Thomas Riddle died and then he had a post-death erection and it was just assumed that that's what killed him. Also a possibility. Whatever it was, the poor fella died and that's not great for him or his family or his friends or Ellen Gray. I'm certain that poor Thomas Riddle never expected to be remembered purely for his bewitched wand in a podcast hundreds of years later. <laughs> However, the one thing we know for sure about Thomas's wand is that this has nothing to do with poor Alan Gray. Despite this, she's accused of far more than simple wand bewitching. Simple? You have any idea how difficult those spells are? <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of charges for magically stealing milk, which is one of the most common witchcraft allegations we come across. People used to think that if a cow wasn't producing milk, then a witch must have cursed it, and not that they just need to give the cow a little TLC and some greener pastures. There is also an alleged curse upon a weaver named John Hay, who would only be able to do evil and wicked deeds unless he spent every penny and was banished from the barony of Slains. Ellen is also accused of visiting and entering a man's house in the shape of a dog, despite all doors being closed, and then she exited out of a window. There's a separate accusation that Ellen and her pal Mergy, apparently a fugitive for witchcraft herself, would go to a loch between their two houses, one in the shape of a dog and one in the shape of a cat, and hang out. As dogs and cats are known to do. Mm -hmm. The records claim that Ellen confessed to being a witch when she was held prisoner in Slane's castle. She described the devil as an old bearded man wearing a white gown and a thrummet hat. Now, a thrummet hat can mean either... Decorative and fringed or shaggy. I mean, let's face it, Annie, you have to be a devil to pull off a shaggy fringed hat. I, <laughs> I, I'm imagining like one of those Australian cork hats, but instead of corks dangling, it's just human hair. Why, why, why hair? <laughs> Jenny, that is not mentioned anywhere. Is that just your imagination being weird? Fringed and shaggy, the hat's got bangs. <laughs> <laughs> When Ellen Gray was apprehended, she said to the people taking her to prison, Is there nae more following me? When I read this, Annie, I didn't really get what it meant. Do you know why this is noted as being like particularly devilish? I can see that they're clearly considering this to be a very witchy thing to say, but I also can't figure out why. I know we have a lot of witchy listeners out there, so maybe let us know. Does Ellen mean that more witches would be following her to prison? Which, I mean, they, they would be. They're in the middle of a panic and a hunt. Or does she mean that more people are going to be following her path to witchcraft and taking her place? Or is she suggesting that there's an unseen presence following her trial? Am I thinking too deeply into this? Please let me know. <laughs> Annie thinking too deeply into something? Never. <laughs> Ellen's trial takes place in the stables of New Slane's castle. She's found guilty, 
But for some reason, they chose to keep her as a prisoner there and not execute her immediately. And then they undertake another trial, this time in Aberdeen, where unfortunately she is found guilty again. But this time she is sentenced to capital punishment. The tragic execution of Ellen Gray is pretty grim. But we know a lot of details about it because at the time, the borough of Aberdeen was keeping incredibly detailed accounting records. I'm often surprised by the type of archival record that gets me emotional, but the way that they break down the execution of Ellen Gray into numbers just tears at me. Ellen was burnt alongside another woman accused and found guilty of witchcraft, Agnes Webster. The account for the execution of these two innocent women reads 22 loads of peat, 2 pounds, 15 shillings 2 barrels of tar, 16 shillings 4 dry trees, 13 shillings, 4 pence 3 loads of fir, wood or bark, 12 shillings For a stake, being carried and set up 10 shillings. For carrying the barrels of tar up to the hill, 5 shillings. And the fee for John Justice, 13 shillings and 4 pence. And that's the cost of burning a woman's body on the stake. Both Ellen and Agnes would likely be strangled at the stake and then burnt as opposed to being burnt alive, though a very small number of people accused of witchcraft were burnt alive in Scotland. It puts it into a really grim, realistic light. Like, I think a lot of the time with witch trials, we have this sort of idea of something that we've seen in a movie or TV shows, but to actually read the accounting list of what it takes to burn two women is, yeah... It's really horrible. It adds up to six pounds, four shillings and eight pence in total. So each woman costs just three pounds, two shilling and four pence to burn, um, which is shocking. I think seeing the cost of a death in raw numbers just really strikes me. It, It makes you consider the value of the life of a woman in this time. Anyway, Francis Hay, Earl of Errol, was not simply involved in witch hunts as a so-called justice upholder, as he was in Ellen's case, but he was also a complainer. Yeah, he was really quite embroiled in the whole witch hunt mania. The Earl accused a poor fellow named Gilbert Fiddler, a cobbler, that's a shoemaker, from Ochmacoy. He accused Gilbert of giving Lady Errol a pair of double-soled bewitched shoes. Gilbert is taken to trial in 1597, though he gave the shoes to Lady Errol almost a decade earlier in 1589. As soon as Lady Errol put the shoes on, she became extremely sick and had to go to her bed. The Earl believed that his wife has contracted a deadly sickness in her feet from the shoes, and that this sickness travelled into her heart and held her in a violent illness. Sounds like she's got one foot in the grave. Oh, just wait until you hear the description of this violent illness. One half day of melting and burning as though in a furnace, 
the other half-day with extreme cold, which no warmth could quench. At any given time, she had either excessive mucus or diarrhoea or vomiting. Something grim was certainly afoot. Luckily, Lady Errol was as tough as old boots and, after surviving 20 long days of illness, recovered. The Earl believed that instead of diamonds, Lady Errol had curses on the soles of her shoes. Curses caused by the sorcery of Gilbert Fiddler. He was highly suspicious of Fiddler, because as soon as Lady Errol put on the shoes, it was said that Fiddler was apparently weighed down by a tremendous feeling of guilt and fled out into the country as a fugitive for three quarters of a year. So the cursed shoes forced him on the run? It certainly seems like the men got off on the wrong foot, Annie. But eventually Gilbert snuck back onto the Errol's land. But he was very cautious. He stayed in deserted places, and apparently he was invisible during the day, but visible in the night time. He was very aware that Lord Errol's kin were searching for him, so he crept back into his very own pantry and begged his wife to keep him hidden. Eventually, Fiddler was caught and imprisoned in Slains for a year and a day, which is indeed not a leather upper, but in fact a leather downer for him. However, the Earl of Errol clearly held a grudge, and so when the witch-hunting mania of 1597 hit, he decided to bring up Gilbert's shoe-cursing past once more. This is eight years later, Surely Lady Errol must have been well healed by then. She actually died years later of unrelated causes, but your joke has legs, Annie. I'll let it stand. <laughs> <laughs> the old accusation is definitely shoehorned into the wave of current accusations. <laughs> shoehorned, okay. <laughs> Fortunately for Fiddler, though, his trial didn't happen in Slains, but rather was undertaken by the General Commission in Aberdeen. The court observantly realised that the accusation was cobbled together, laced with inconsistencies, and that Gilbert was tied up in a bit of a neighbourly feud. And so they gave the accusations the boot and acquitted him. The court then put the shoe on the other foot and ordered Patrick Cruikshank, one of the other main accusers of Gilbert, to be taken in and charged with malicious prosecution. It's really interesting because our Earl of Evil was also an accuser in this case, but obviously the court are not going to charge him with making false accusations because he's far too powerful. Yeah, this is true. But also Cruikshank had been pointing his finger and shouting witch at a few people across Aberdeen, and the court suspected him of trying to abuse the witch hunts to settle his personal grudges with. Alright, this is my last pun. You ready to hear it, Annie? Mm-hmm with its arch enemies. <laughs> like, like the arch of a foot. That was a stretch. I'll, I'll, most of them are a stretch. I'll, that's fair. <laughs> there were a lot of shoe-related puns in there that didn't quite fit Jenny. Well, you know, I had I had a lot of pent-up pun energy waiting to sneak her out after trying to control myself during the whole deadly erection part of the episode. So, you know. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know what they say, Annie. The bigger the cursed shoe the bigger the magic wand. <laughs> they do not say that, Jenny. <laughs> they might now. <laughs> okay, I have one more case, that of Andrew Mann, which I find the most curious of the Aberdeen cases. 
You mean the ones so far haven't been curious enough already? Well, there's a few things that make the Andrew Mann case stand out. So he was a man, just like Gilbert Fiddler. But let's acknowledge just for a moment that this is slightly unusual. Ah, yes, okay, because according to witch trial records in Scotland, approximately only 15% of people accused of witchcraft were men. Also, he's around about pension age, maybe 65 to 70. I see, because if my stats serve me correctly, only around 13% of folk accused of witchcraft were over 60. So again, he's an outlier here as well. And also, apparently, he had fairy or elf children. My my data on this one is non-conclusive. I, I don't have... there's the, I, the stats don't pull through on that one. Well, Andrew Mahan allegedly met the devil who was in the shape of a woman at the time, which is unusual. But the devil was not in disguise as just any woman, but as the Queen of Elves herself, or the Queen of Fairies. When he met her, the Queen of Elves apparently promised Andrew that he would be able to cure all sickness and know all things as Thomas Reimer did. Wow, that's some some big promises she's making. And we'll definitely have to do an episode on Thomas Reimer soon. Thomas Reimer, or Thomas the Reimer, as he was also a poet, is a character from folklore who's semi-mythological, semi-real, I think, who went into the fairyland and was known as a prophet. He also had second sight abilities, so he was a seer. So to have all those powers granted to you would be a very big deal. The trial also dives deep into the relationship between Andrew Mann, the accused, and the Queen of the Elves. Thou confess that be the space of 32 years since then, thou began to have carnal dealings with that devilish spirit, the Queen of the Elves. Who those has since seen? Wait a minute, Annie. This sounds like some old school fan fiction where this is going. What can I say? It's a salacious trial. (laughs) Andrew Mann was planting his turnips in the Queen of the Elf's field. I feel guilty for finding this so fascinating because I know that these trials are life and death. But basically, the devil is embodied by the Queen of the Elf's who Andrew Mann has sex with. Oh, all right. I've got to cork up those puns again. (laughs) Some parts of the trial are less imaginative. The Queen of the Elves appears out of an elfin hillock and causes the death of a cow. If I was an early modern peasant sort of just watching the witch trials happen all around me, I would definitely be playing witch trial bingo and I would definitely be getting a stamp for bewitched cows. It seems that there's almost as many cows as there are witches in these trials. There's just hundreds of them. When Andrew Mann wasn't in alleged carnal dealings with the Queen of the Elves, he was allegedly healing people with a mixture of black wool and salt as a remedy. He would give this healing with a blessing. If thou will live, live. And if thou will die, die. Thanks, Jenny. I feel healed. Ah, don't thank me. Thank the Queen of the Elves. Or potentially King James IV. As apparently, the ghost of King James IV inhabited the same fairy hill that Andrew Mann went into with the Queen of the Fairies. 
where he also met Thomas the Rhymer, the myth of the man. So we have both a prophet, a ghost, and a queen of the fairies inside this one hill. He's, he's having a great time. I don't know, Annie. Some say three's a crowd. Andrew was allegedly healing people and livestock and putting specific protective enchantments and spells upon cowfields to give them resistance to a variety of cattle diseases. If thou will moo, moo. If thou will make cheese, make it cheddar, because my palate's not developed enough to enjoy blue cheese. So that wasn't what he was accused of saying, but he was accused of casting spells on cowfields. The trial also alleges that Andrew healed a man by using a piece of yarn to transfer a deadly disease from a human man to a cat. What happened to the cat? Uh, it died of the deadly disease. Oh. And then Andrew also allegedly cures a woman who was apparently diseased through furiosity and madness. I find this also contradictory because so often the transcripts of the trial reads through your devilish witchcraft and sorcery you cured so and so and it's just I feel like curing someone is a good thing so sure the cure can't be devilish you know like they're helping people I think it's starting on the basis that everyone is presumed guilty instead of innocent and also that any witchcraft is coming through the power of the devil there's no difference between a healing spell or a harmful spell. They're saying that everything is is a sin and it's through devil magic that will ultimately create an evil. Okay, yeah. But the testimony of Andrew Mann gives us a very vivid image of the inside of the fairy hill. His testimony is very detailed. We learn about the fairies being very mysterious shapes, almost like shadows, he describes them. And he also says that the devil comes in the shape of crows, as they are such clever birds. We then have another sexual reference, as it mentions that Andrew kisses the devil's bum, whilst the devil is in the shape of the queen of the elves, and also while the devil was in the shape of an angel dressed in white. Unfortunately for Andrew Mann, he was found guilty and convicted. He was executed in January 1598, after the majority of the witch hunt panic had already died down. I couldn't actually find the record of his execution myself, but a historian I highly respect has referenced it, so I'm confident that it exists. I think after looking at these different cases of people and the way that the witch hunts impacted their life, all we can see here is a lot of death and devastation. But during his trial, Andrew Mann stirred the cauldron one last time as he named a good few people as witches, including our friend Gilbert Fiddler of the Enchanted Shoes. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Abidentia witch trials that we've discussed in this episode are a fascinating window into the great Scottish witch hunt of 1597. The well-preserved and existing archives give us a good idea of the majority of the trials. We're not sure how many were lost, but within Aberdeenshire we've got a total of 80 known cases. So that's 80 people swept up in the wave of accusations and confessions. Of these, 27 were confirmed as executed, though this number could be higher. And then we have a couple of other deaths connected to this witch hunt, including a death in prison and a suicide. 30 people in total. This is an enormous number for such a short period of time. It is, and it's also worth noting that although the records that remain are very informative, there were likely more people accused and possibly executed whose records have not survived. But the numbers that we do have show that at a minimum about one in a thousand people of the entirety of Aberdeenshire as a whole were pulled into this mess. And in the parishes that were most involved, this figure would be one in 250 people. So when you've got a wee community, they are suddenly really impacted by these trials. The entirety of Aberdeenshire was on high alert during this time. Everyone would have been aware of the witch panic. And whether they believed in such things or not, there was no escaping the possibility that they themselves, or someone they love, might get sucked into the chaos. Everyone would have known someone who'd been affected by the craze. The genuine fear stoked by famine, plague, and a king hell-bent on driving the devil from his kingdom devastated communities. It destroyed the trust between neighbours, families, friends, healers and helpers. Personal grudges were blown spectacularly out of proportion and those on the edges of communities bore the brunt of the fear. The period in 1597 is of course called the Great Scottish Witch Hunt, not the Great Aberdonian Witch Hunt. And this is because the snowball of accusations smashed its way through the whole nation. Fife, Perthshire, Glasgow and Stirlingshire also saw large numbers of accusations and trials, and many other smaller communities were gripped by the panic. The trials in the rest of Scotland are not nearly as well documented as what we have from the trove of information on the Aberdeenshire cases. Exact numbers are not known, but it's generally estimated that 400 people would have been put on trial and that probably up to about 200 would be executed. 
the Great Scottish Witch Hunt of 1597 across Scotland lasted until around October. And as we've said, every single person who went on trial for witchcraft was innocent. They committed no crime, but the legal system manufactured one for them. Countless lives were destroyed and many communities torn apart in collective paranoia, grief, loss and trauma. Slane's Castle bookends the witch panic in Aberdeenshire, with Ellen Gray being tried and imprisoned in January and Gilbert Fiddler being accused late on in the game in October. One of the reasons the fear of witches took such a hold in the area at the time was that the Earl of Errol threw himself into the fray and actively stoked the fires. He not only held those accused of witchcraft prisoners within the walls of his own castle, he also accused people of being in pacts with the devil and took part in the trials, resulting in the execution of innocent people. In much the same way as having a witch-mad king, Having a witch-mad earl in charge of your region brings the fear of the devil and the possibility of witches much closer to home. We don't know for sure if the earl genuinely believed in witchcraft and the devil. But what we do know is at the time he was freshly returned from exile and very keen to gain favour with the king. The same king who had ordered his old castle destroyed as punishment for his rebellious actions. So, did the Earl's witch-hunting streak pay off? Was it all worth it? It certainly seems so, yes. I think there's a few different factors at play here. Also, the fact that Earl of Errol's wife was a much better diplomat, (laughs) I would say, in the early modern court than he himself was. But I think that Earl of Errol made a very conscious choice in choosing to serve up active involvement in the witch hunt to the king as a sign of his own personal loyalty to the king's belief, especially when they've had their religious differences in the past. The king was satisfied with the Earl of Errol's commitments and so he settles back into his aristocratic happy life at Slane's. A few years later, in 1602, the Earl of Errol was even appointed as a commissioner to negotiate the union of crowns between Scotland and England. So not only is he back in the king's good books, he's taking a very active role in incredibly important political happenings of the time. Yes, but in a twist of fate, the Kirk wasn't so convinced by the Earl of Errol's act. In 1608, his conversion to Protestantism was questioned, and he was then declared a papist. He was excommunicated and held prisoner in Dumbarton for a number of years. Errol was released in 1611 and returned to his clifftop Newslane's castle, where he lived for another 20 years until his death in 1631. During this time, he was not involved in any more witch trials, although yet another great Scottish witch hunt was in full swing in the final years of his life. And this witch hunt was the third of the five great panics, the final one coming 30 years later in 1661. When's the fourth one? It's in the 1640s. Okay. They're literally like decades apart. It's weird. The final panic estimates at least 
660 people tried for witchcraft. So we can see that all these decades on, witches are still believed to be a very real and very terrifying threat. It is at this time that Isabel Gaudi is accused and arrested. Her confessions in particular are amongst the most vivid and detailed of any collected over the 70 years of the dreadful Scottish witch hunts. Isabel Gowdy's story is truly fascinating and last year we released an audio drama exploring her life and the circumstances surrounding her accusation. It's called Weight of Sand and you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Just a little plug at the end there. (laughs) (laughs) There are a few campaign groups interested in the historical injustice of witch trials across the world and a couple of the Scottish ones are called Witches of Scotland, we mentioned them earlier, and Remembering the Accused Witches of Scotland. You can also look at the Survey of Scottish Witchcraft database, though I recommend using your preferred search engine and Boolean logic search filters, because I find the search function on that database to be complex. I find it to be cursed. Thank you all so much for listening to our wee show. If you've enjoyed this episode and you think you know someone else who would appreciate it too, then why not share it with them and help spread the stories of Scotland? You can also give us a five star rating and leave a wonderful wee review for us. It helps us win the algorithm wars and allows more people to find us and it makes us smile. It's a win, win, win. If you'd like to support Jenny and I as we make this show for you, then you can head over to patreon.com slash stories of Scotland and sign up. By joining our patron for the cost of a turnip or two a month, you can help your two favourite independent podcasters whilst also gaining access to lots more Scottish content. A warm welcome to our new patrons... The Wolves or Wolves of Clan Buchanan, Lisa, Janice, and KW Zumwalt. I apologise if I pronounce any of them wrong. <laughs> may your turnips grow mighty. <laughs> and may the mountains smile upon you. Since we've mentioned cows in Witchcraft Bingo today, I would like to end on the note of celebrating the humble cow. Well, actually, the least humble of all the cows, the most majestic, of course, it is the Highland cow. So I would like to imagine you all as Highland cows. Our lives are simply bovine divine. We get to roam around the hills and glens and graze on nutrient-dense grasses and wildflowers. We bask in the warm Scottish sun on the one day a year that it comes out. It's truly a marvellous experience to be this big hairy beast. I'm not just trying to butter you up. Let me tell you that being a Highland cow is utterly amusing. We eat my favourite Greek dish of layered aubergine, moussaka, with a side of horn on the cob. And we drink Cuddy Mary's mojitos. Pina cowladas, mimosas, <laughs> or cow cow nut milk lattes. 
Our dessert is of course cookies. Our tiramisu. In our free time, we make attractive Highland cow poses for postcards and shortbread tins. We look gorgeous in the fields. We comb each other's hair because it gets long and tangly and sometimes knotted. We play all the games that you can play with four legs and a cow body. Oh, and we swim between the different wee islands. That's something that Highland cows were famous for back in the day. It's being herded between the different small islands on the Western Isles for grazing. So we're actually excellent swimmers. What swimming strokes do cows do when we're swimming between these different islands? Um, beast stroke? Front cool. <laughs> butter, butter cow stroke? Butter, butter butterfly stroke? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Until next time, Slangeva. Slangeva. It's diamonds on the sole of your feet. A saying. Oh, you don't know the the song? What? Diamonds on the soles of a shoe, Simon and Garfunkel? Although I think it's actually just Paul Simon. I'll send you the song. It's an absolute classic, Annie. (laughs) I'm surprised because I've listened to a lot of Simon and Garfunkel in my life. You must know it. I would sing it, but like, I just, I'm not going to sing it. Oh no, please sing it. Please sing it. There's loads of like, humbada, humbada, diamonds, 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 diamonds on the soles of her shoes. (laughs) Okay, this sounds like a children's rhyme, but I swear. (laughs) I think it's from Graceland. (laughs) Okay. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.